0: But I'm doing something that humans do. I'm trying to explain this time to myself by making something from it and about it. I'm trying to make myself something that I need to live now.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode is the first on a short series on art, creating, and care, linking with a very thoughtful exhibition called Notions of Care. The show brings together five artists and groups to consider care in art making through materials, how we relate to one another, and as an approach to the world. And one of the artists showing is Kate Tucker. Kate works across painting and ceramics, creating these incredible assemblage-like pieces that are compelling in their construction. Kate's process involves the layering of various materials and textures, expanding our idea of what painting can be by subverting the familiar notions of the form. Kate and I chat about what care means to her and what it means to approach an art practice with care. We also talk about detaching from external notions of success, how and why she creates her works, and the importance of having aesthetic experiences. And before we get started, a kind thank you to our sponsor for this series. The show Notions of Care is a bus projects exhibition touring with NETS Victoria, which is curated by Catherine Genevieve Honey and Nina Mulhall. The project is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria and received assistance from NETS Victoria's Exhibition Development Fund 2020, supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. Since we're talking in relation to an exhibition about care, I was thinking it might be interesting if you first talk about what your idea of care is.
0: So I've been thinking about care, obviously in relation to this exhibition, but more broadly, especially with COVID and the lockdowns. You know, care ideally is a loop. So you care and, you know, you're also cared for. So it's a kind of something that builds. But I also think... Care is about really seeing something, giving attention and really supporting something for what it actually is as opposed to, I suppose, being conditional in the way you view something or you want it to be. Yeah, so I think there's the more kind of specific ways that we care for each other or care for our practice. But there's also that general question around what care really is Mm -hmm. and I think that's about really being able to just be, like not putting too many expectations on what that actually is going to mean.
1: Yeah. In terms of an art practice, how do you think care manifests? Yeah, well, I think,
0: I mean, I really felt particularly in the lockdowns when I didn't have access to my studio and I, I was so aware of that space that my practice sits in, how important that is for me in in self-care, in having space to think and space to make. But I, yeah, I also think it's a you can, you can show care in your practice towards others, I suppose, by almost modelling that self-care as well. Mm. So I feel like when you, in being an artist, you're, you're prioritising, creating a space in your own life for curiosity and um, risk and all of these, and wonder, all of these things. And in doing that and in sharing that work, I think you almost maybe give others permission to do that too. Mm. So if your work can hold the viewer in a space where maybe they can step outside of, you know, their general viewpoint and go somewhere else. I think in that way it can be generous, art can be generous and caring. But more specifically in the lockdown, when I was making work for this show, I, you know, I was physically distant from my family, like a lot of people. And I saw that my mum, in order to cope with not seeing her kids and something on together, she was doing a lot of creative stuff just doing a lot of craft and stitching and um, I was also stitching because I was working within the constraints of what I could do at home and I was um, you know creating images I was making small work and then making images of the work and then printing them and then reworking them and sewing and doing stuff I could do at home mm-hmm. and I just so wanted I was thinking about how can we care for each other when we can't see each other and we can ask each other how we are, but we're all not great at the moment, you know. And I just saw mum looking after herself by stitching and I I ended up collaborating with, with her on the care banners. Um, yeah, so I made I made the work and I sent it in the post down to her and she stitched into the work. Yeah. And I think what I was trying to do in a way was give her, it was an exchange, but it, I was giving her an opportunity to do, do self-care for herself. I was giving her a reason, which was because of me. Um, because I saw it was working for her. And that was such a lovely, it was a really lovely experience and it was a way of accepting the constraints of the situation and using them to push into somewhere new, I guess.
1: Mm. And it's interesting as well because, I mean, you know, if your mother was alone, you completely missed that sense of touch and I feel like everyone during COVID missed that sense of touch because it really was a, a disease where you couldn't have contact with other people in yeah. any meaningful way and it didn't really feel surprising that a lot of people went back to very tactile things and there was lots of baking and sewing and craft making.
0: Absolutely. And, yeah, my mum my and dad were doing a lot of stuff together and gardening and doing all this lovely stuff and I, I think I was more aware of myself needing, seeing the way that they actually dealt with it really well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, really well. Um, and they sort of had this self-sufficiency around, yeah, all of these these things that they're engaged with in, in their home, in their garden and their projects and music and all of it. And I suppose I, I turned the lens back on myself and kind of thought, well, okay, I'm obviously doing a lot of this stuff through my art practice and when I can't go to my studio, you know, that something's really lost yeah. um, and I... It quite consciously transferred some of those processes and ideas into things that I could do at home. And I the work definitely absorbed the domestic influence a little bit. Um, I thought much more about the structure because I was so aware of the context around my work and how much it changed the work. Mm-hmm. And I started becoming more aware of what I construct and what that actually is when I go to my studio yeah. um, and how that enables me to do what I am doing, but also Why? Like, why do I think I need to go there to do this certain thing or validate this certain thing? Or, yeah, I suppose in relation to care, I just thought anyone who has a creative practice, you know, you really need to value it. It doesn't matter whether it's professionalised or it's monetized or any of that stuff. It's part of being human. And we've always sort of, humans have always played with, they've made themselves things and played with clay and paint and I think there's something deeply comforting and deeply human about that lineage as well.
1: Yeah.
0: And it doesn't so much matter where it ends up going or what it ends up being as long as you can give yourself permission to do it.
1: I feel like that's the really beautiful side of creativity and care, but then obviously if you're a professional artist, you're working within an art industry and at times it feels like there's all these voices in the art industry really – highlighting care and the need to care. But at the same time, I kind of wonder if that puts the onus on individual artists to like do self-care and to care for each other, whereas the institutions maybe themselves need to be offering that sense of care. Is that something that you feel like you've had to navigate? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I think I've seen it as quite a solo journey, largely, because I think part of making it sustainable is to detach yourself from external notions of success because, you know, I can't control that. And I think when you are prioritising this space in your life where you're going to do all this stuff and it's maybe going to cost you, you can't think about whether or not it's going to work or you wouldn't do it. But I've definitely felt that there are things that can get easier, particularly, you know, like when you have a relationship with a commercial gallery and you can just forget about a whole side of it and you have this sense of stability, I think, that makes it so much easier. But I always feel really conscious of the precarity when I was first starting out and I didn't have any of those systems of support and I had to build them all myself. I guess I, I still could because I was so acutely aware of how much I needed to do it. And how much I needed these questions to be answered for me. And I was very motivated by that. And I think I still maintain that mindset a bit that almost it's not for me to decide how other people are going to respond to my work. Mm. I think my job almost is to to leave that to others and to go as deep as I can into what I'm trying to do and just avoid the noise around it.
1: Yeah. Can we go back a little bit because before you went to art school, you studied design and I was curious why you made that choice first.
0: I mean, I always wanted to be an artist. Uh, I always was making art. Even, you know, as a kid I was always making something and we had a craft room at home where we could just do a painting or sew something or make some clay or, you know, it was really part of living. But the idea of being a professional artist, that was quite, very intimidating and quite different, I think. And I was pragmatic. I just kind of went, Well, I know I'm really creative. I I want to learn, I want tools. Like I want to f- I want to have as many tools as I can that I can use to be part of the creative world. And I'll adapt to, you know, I'll, I'll find a way to fit. And in studying design, I, I certainly enjoyed that some of the technical and creative side of that was really interesting. And I bring a lot of that. I've brought a lot of it with me into into art. It's all really interesting stuff. But I think working as a designer, there was just something missing and I think I knew there was and I kept shifting what I was doing a little bit. So, you know, I moved into illustrating and textile design and all this different stuff to try and scratch this itch. And I think I did feel a pressure to, you know, I wanted to contribute and I didn't want to assume that I had something to say that was going to be so great that, I could just go and be an artist when it was actually a really hard thing to do. <laughs> um, so I probably thought about it too much. But at the same time, I, when I did eventually go to art school, it was an instant feeling of, like, going home. And I very quickly realised that it, wasn't, it isn't actually the tools or the craft or any of that. It's about why you do stuff and the way that you engage when you go to work each day, like, what the purpose of it is. Mm. And that was just such a relief. It was an enormous relief. But I also had, I was older. I had more confidence in myself and in my own voice. It felt more valid to just bring my voice forth and not necessarily knowing what I wanted to say, but just to say, I'm going to be heard now and I'm going to go on this journey and it's going to be witnessed. I couldn't do that when I was younger.
1: Mm, Why do you think you couldn't do it when you were younger?
0: I think I had a lack of confidence and a lack of clarity, I think I've responded really well to constraints. Mm -hmm. I think it felt too broad and I had an ability to, if I applied myself to something, I could do it. So what I was lacking was a conviction about where to put my energy and that's been a big thing in my art practice as well. When I first went to art school, I was trying lots of different processes and I wasn't, I didn't necessarily feel clear on what I wanted to make at all. I had too many ideas it was a problem. (laughs) Still do. And I think the process of the last 10 years really has been about refining and simplifying and eliminating. And when I work, my work's very material-based, I think partly because materials bring constraints. You know, you, you get in there with your idea and you start going somewhere and you have a departure point, but they contribute back. They push back and it becomes an exchange and you can you sort of step back and the materials get their own agency, particularly when you're working with multiples at the same time. And it feels like you're part of something much bigger where you're not visualising the outcome and controlling everything. It's more that you just set off and then it sort of makes itself and that's so thrilling. And part of that is knowing that at the end you get to decide what you've made and when it's done and what it is. And I think that's the difference that's what I couldn't have when I was in design, you know, and I couldn't I couldn't get fully engaged with it because I felt like someone else could tell me to change the colour at the end.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you would have listened. To <laughs> and I would have had to have listened. <laughs> when you first went to art school, was painting, because your practice is so much, it is about painting, but it also just completely expands painting at the same time. Was painting the first form you gravitated to?
0: Not at all. If anything, I was probably avoiding it a little bit. I I sort of always did it. I felt like it was such a big thing to enter into and I was pulling all of these really disparate things together. So I was doing photography and installation and I think I was really interested in always in the idea of stepping outside of the expected kind of scope of one medium. And that was maybe what defined my early experimentation was how can I get this thing that I'm interested in and then maybe this other thing as well and make them combine or speak to each other in a new way. And that probably was linked back to doing multimedia and working in the digital space where things are so limitless. It's in a way the opposite to working with materials with limitations and constraints. Mm -hmm. You know, if you make a digital animation, there's infinite possibilities in in what can happen. So you become responsible for kind of containing what can happen. And I didn't so much want to do that. I more wanted to be able to just get into a space where the work kind of dictated its own direction. Yeah. So the initial work I was doing was super broad. And I actually had a really excellent moment with Bernard Sachs mm. at VCA. And he said to me, you need to understand what you're doing by doing the opposite of what you're doing. Right. And I said, well, okay, what am I doing? And he said, well, you just made a small, colourful thing. So make a big black and white thing. That was a moment where I something just clicked and my work completely changed and I got such a freedom in it. And I think it was realising that I could impose the context onto what I was doing and I could set those constraints and then I would be free within them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So rather than thinking of all the possible art I could make ever, just sit with one question.
1: Yeah
0: and and really take a risk in it, push it as far as it can go.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was a huge liberation and, it, and I, I made work and I stood back and I went, I, you know, I think I just did something there I haven't done before. And then painting, I came to painting after I had my son really intuitively because I wasn't putting pressure on myself to work and I just wanted to paint. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I wasn't intending on even showing it, I suppose, I just felt like doing it. And I think in a way that was about me not feeling the pressure to do a good painting. Mm -hmm. It was doing it for myself or maybe for him because I actually did a painting on his wall and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I thought, hmm, I think maybe I'm approaching painting in the wrong way.
1: When I first saw your works, it wasn't like a typical painting that I saw, but it was what you call your tablets, which are these almost kind of sculptural forms, but they still retain like a sense of painting. And it's a build-up of all these different materials. And they're just stunning. Like the first time that I saw one, I think I immediately went and, you know, grabbed the artwork sheet and I was like, how do you make this? What's in it? I was wondering if you could first talk about how you came to expanding painting in that way.
0: Thank you. That means a lot.
1: Yeah, they're gorgeous. <laughs> so they
0: came about I think the process of collage of reworking parts was happening a lot, and even when I was before I started making those tablets, I was doing that with many, many layers of paint and when I started building up the tablets, I had begun staining fabrics as well, so it was that having multiple versions of of the same thing, so using the same paint to stain and then with a brush and having it coexist with another version of itself within the work, I was quite interested in that. And I was also getting this sense of depth through the multiple layers and being able to build up layers so that the materials would retain some of their characteristics, but then others would get lost and there would become an ambiguity around what you were looking at. And I was so interested in that. Yeah. But initially I think just the feeling of of constraint, I so needed that constraint in order to start painting but then it became a constraint I didn't want anymore. So in terms of the the layers building, they were building the form as well as the the content in the image and it was becoming not so much an image anymore as an object. But I think that being a little bit between two things is what really excited me and it still does. I, I tend to have in everything I make a kind of duality, like something that's a little bit something, but it's maybe leaning towards something else. Mm-hmm. And with the more recent work where the tablets kind of are supported by a ceramic base, I approach the paintings very much in this sculptural way and I build them slowly and I do do paintings just on a piece of linen and then I, I often cut it up and I reprocess it until it's perhaps not recognisable anymore. Sometimes they're figurative paintings, but they're, they're an element that's part of a much bigger whole that builds up to become something quite sculptural where the materials are starting to act a little bit more like they're perhaps thin fabrics but they're they read as solid or they're very organic but then I put an acrylic kind of level over them where they are plasticized and kind of impenetrable as well mm-hmm. uh, and then when I'm approaching the ceramics I have quite a painterly approach to the ceramics so I make the work simultaneously and they absorb the qualities of the other parts. So when I'm making ceramics, I often, I almost create multiple images that then get pulled apart and built back into something that's an object. Mm-hmm. But I think when I'm doing this, I really like that they're sitting together and they're really, what they're doing is they're almost seeing each other through each through each other's eyes. <laughs> so. You look at the sculptural base and you know it's a sculpture and you feel like your viewpoint for this sculpture is from multiple angles. It's it's an object. It's a three, three-dimensional object. When you're viewing the painting, it's, it's a painting. You sort of want to look at the surface, but they're, they're one thing. So there's no single viewpoint. There's no right way to view it. And I'm really interested in that. They sort of open a question collectively about how can you Sort of know what something is, but not really, and sort of be able to see it, but not really. And one of the things that I really find interesting when my work is shown is people often come up to it and they they're really interested in the surface. And they may have seen my work on a screen before; they might have seen a digital image of my work. And when they see it in real life, they go, "Oh, that's not. I didn't realize it was like that." And I think that's part of what I'm interested in doing. You know, so much of our experience in this time is like our aesthetic experience is so dominated by these fleeting digital images and everything's getting flattened out down to the same size and you know so much is lost but it does become something else so you know the the photograph of my work is another thing in itself Mm -hmm. with its own value and I'm interested in that I'm interested in the way that my sculpture might be flattened out to become an image and that that being its own thing. But I think when that, our life is so dominated by that experience of, of images, when you create an object that is relatable in the sense that it has recognisable and familiar and kind of comforting materials, you know, the texture of linen and clay, and it has that connection point but it's also really ambiguous and really tactile and it's a little bit unclear which bits are doing what and how it came to be what it is and it's such an expansion it's like the opposite of the flattening down of of the digital
1: yeah yeah you've kind of I guess in a way I've talked through the materials and explained that so beautifully is do you see the works as having like a content to them or is the content the materiality of them
0: yeah that's a really good question the content is often my own work so other works uh, sometimes when I'm forming Ceramic parts and painting parts at the same time, they are of each other. They depict each other. I sometimes create still lives in the studio, which I photograph or sketch from life, and then I paint based on that. So that's always ongoing. But at the same time, I also draw in influences from, I often have vintage books and magazines of DIY. Mm -hmm. And I keep coming back to that, and I think it's because I'm really interested in this this part of being human, which is about making ourselves things. And I think we're in a time now, because I'm trying to place myself in, you know, the lineage of art and I'm looking at now and I'm going, well, I feel like we are not making as much stuff, you know. We're we're not making ourselves a chair, we're buying one online, you know. Yeah. There's a bit of a a pull away from the hands, I think, in general. And I'm very much about thinking through the hands and there's also yeah there's there's something universal about providing for yourself through things that you can make and also being utilized and mm-hmm. learning skills and yeah i think the whole idea of that diy movement in the 60s and 70s is it's great because it's about creating access for everyone to it's it's making something simple and doable for everybody and there's such value i think in people being empowered to make things that they want. And I suppose I reference that because I want to link that in some way to what I'm doing. I want to say, oh, look, I'm not making a chair and I'm certainly not following any instructions, but I'm doing something that humans do. I'm trying to explain this time to myself by making something from it and about it. I'm trying to make myself something that I need to, to live now. Mm-hmm. And it's not a functional object. It's something that somehow taps into something that isn't visual and physicalizes it. Yeah. And I think for me that is that I'm, I'm a highly visual person and I really want to create something that's of this world and of materials and very tactile, And but I want it to be about the experience of dealing with the non-visual.
1: It's funny that you talk about that because I think quite a lot about how, you know, especially like in my family, like grandparents and great-grandparents would make things from furniture to clothes and food and tablecloths and doilies and everything like that. And as the generations have gone on, that has slowly filtered out. Do you think we'll see a return to those kinds of things or do you think we're just going to go more into staring at our screens instead?
0: That's a really interesting question because I think it's quite central for me. Like my grandparents were a huge influence on me. They, you know, had sheep and they got the wool and they spun the wool and... Mm you know, and they preserved fruit and grew the fruit. And then, you know, I think we live in a time where, you know, we can't have a sheep and, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we're compressed. There's a lot of pressure on us, you know, physically compressed in cities. There's a lot of pressure on us to economically, to be productive. And, yeah, I think it's really hard to prioritise anything, no matter how much you value it in your life if it doesn't sort of make sense on paper to be putting your time there. And that's really sad, actually. So I think a lot of people would really like to be using their hands more. And it certainly became super clear to me that when I do things with my own hands, you know, it draws in so much more than, it's so far beyond the craft of what you're actually doing. It's a way of having autonomy. And I I think people want that and maybe by doing it i feel like i'm inviting them into that space because maybe we can't all do that mm. so yeah i guess i'm i'm getting i'm making objects that are almost symbolic of the experience of engaging making and engaging and doing and i'm trying to get that really exciting middle part of when you're making art where it's chaotic and everything's possible and you know resolution is ahead of you and you know you're going to get there but it's still totally open and you get into that flow state where it's driving you and all the ideas are just flowing but they're not too much because you're already in it and there's already a logic to the materials and to what you're doing and I want to capture that space and suspend it in the work and I I would ideally really like other people to feel some of that energy when they view the work and that that openness and it's almost a place it's inviting people to be in a questioning open place Mm -hmm. and I suppose that's part of living in this time like You know, we, as a species, we just need a huge course correction. So it's so hard to be a human now and not have a critical eye in some way to the way things are because they're just going the wrong way. So I suppose I'm thinking through materials and using them as my language, but I'm probably trying to invite the viewer to have a moment where they step outside of they go somewhere else for a bit and maybe see things through a different lens. I suppose I hope that people respond to these Visual experiences in a similar way to the way that I do, which is to to feel that they they trigger a whole lot of other really positive and interesting things. You know, like when you look at a painting, you think of the other paintings you've seen. Yeah. Um, you look at an object, you you are reminded of similar objects or a colour, or you know, there's there's so much language in it, and. I suppose my work is quite there's quite a lot in it. It's quite compressed. Mm -hmm. And it's partly because I almost want this intense experience of seeing things that maybe aren't necessarily meant to go together all together and somehow working.
1: Yeah.
0: Somehow being this this ambiguous new thing that has its own logic, but it's quite outside of the normal experience of life.
1: Mm -hmm. I think everyone knows what it's like to have that kind of aesthetic experience. Like, you know, whatever your painting is that you might have that experience with might not be mine, but I understand the experience. Is there like a particular work of art that's been very memorable for you where you have had that experience? That's an interesting
0: one. I think that how transferable that experience is is really interesting to me. Like we can we can have a, the same experience, but in relation to a totally different artwork. I think that in itself really fascinates me because when I'm asked about influences, I immediately think of so many. I don't know, you know, I don't know where to start and that in itself is part of my experience of life. I I retain so many things at once that I almost can't bring myself to give one answer. And I think in a way what what I try to do with my practice is I try to get all these really different things and I try to force them into something where they're cohesive and and it's a singular output. So, you know, recently when I, I... was lucky enough to go to Europe and I just absolutely saw so much amazing art in a very short period of time and it was otherworldly, especially after COVID. And I think what I took with me really was this sensation of wandering around a museum and just being hit repeatedly with amazing, amazing work and it almost becomes a state that you're in receiving this and it's the power of a collective group of works by by a group of people across time who've all been trying to do something a little bit similar mm-hmm. I think that's what really really gets me but I'm also interested in disrupting the purity of any one influence like I, I I never want anything to be just what it is distinct I always seem to put something in that disrupts it or questions it and I think that's because the the critical viewpoint or the multiple viewpoints, is, it's a really big part of what I'm interested in.
1: You mentioned before that sometimes figurative works go into the pieces. Have you ever just exhibited figurative work as itself?
0: No, I don't think so. I, I think, um, I mean, I used to paint, obviously I did a lot of figurative stuff when I was young. The thing for me is I'm not interested in narrative. I'm interested in open, ambiguous non-linear, non-chronological, non-hierarchical. As soon as I have something figurative, it becomes, I take it out of the context it was in, it becomes forms, it becomes something else, and then I reframe it and reprocess it. You know, everything I do gets reprocessed to the point where it's no longer representing what it was at all. But I do like that there's this embedded history in all of it. So it's my practice is all very tied together. Like I have a library of kind of fabrics that I've created over the years and I don't chuck out the scraps. I um, I bring it all back in together. So there's sort of a history and almost an archive of my own making and I, I draw on that as though that's, that's the content in a way, is I, I've been doing this and I'm still doing it and it's building in this particular direction not because I thought I want it to look like this, but because this is where I find myself now.
1: Yeah. When you are building the layers in the work at a very practical level, do you know in advance how they're going to go or do you not just comes, comes?
0: Yeah, the the making of the work is very intuitive. I, I think I like it to be very, very open. I don't want to control anything very much. And I think that's partly... That letting go is partly about the fact that I think when you, particularly when you've been doing something for a while, you can have a tendency to become a little bit tight with it. You know, you can, you can, if you get good at something, it can take away some of the joy and some of the, some of the risk. So I'm always really consciously pushing back against that and I often switch up to a whole different material or process and just try that and it'll often fail but it repositions you into being an amateur and not knowing and, mm-hmm. and just trying stuff and I, I love that being in that space and then you bring that back to the materials and process that, that you're comfortable with but you, but you hold that in your mind and you go, I never want to repeat anything I've done before. I want everything to be a process of discovery. Yeah. So I never know what something's going to look like at the end and I think that freedom <laughs> of growing paintings outward mm-hmm. is partly about that as well. Like I I never actually have to stop.
1: Yeah. There was something that you said in a Nava video which I really liked and you said that art is how I get what's in here out and I was wondering what the in here was.
0: Yeah, I think that's about language. It's about the fact that I can express something that I have an urge to express through making art and I can't actually express it any other way. It's not verbal and I, I guess that is part of being a visual, a visual artist. You're often, I suppose, motivated to do this because there's no other way to do it. And I do feel like I have this crazy inventory of visual content within myself and I've always had it and you do have a, you have a desire to use, to use that and I'm probably preoccupied with trying to make things that are in my head real. And if I don't work enough, if I don't get to the studio enough, I will lie awake at night just visualising artworks I'm going to make. And it's maddening. <laughs> and I know I need to go to the studio more when that happens, whereas when I do go enough, that doesn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, it's it probably is cathartic to a certain extent, but it's also not, I've never seen my work as being, like, about the personal or therapeutic, in you know, in the literal sense. It's more that I think the way that I do engage with the world is really visual and I have all this data and I want to use that part of me which seems to be a strong part, I want to contribute with that and through that because I I suppose I hope that that's my best chance of showing or giving the world something it hasn't had before or or that might, might be worth the time.
1: And that was Kate Tucker for this latest podcast episode supported by Nets Victoria. Stay tuned for future episodes in this series. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide Online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country.